I was asked to deliver a Bob Waldron quote tonight, so I'll start with that. It's just snow. (laughs) We are so thankful to be here uh, this evening to honor the God of heaven and to study his word. Appreciate those who could come despite the threatening and clement weather and thankful for your love for God's people and honoring him in this way. So I walked in the house the other night and something smelled really good. Sandy was cooking, as she does frequently, that I'm I'm thankful for. Uh, But something smelled exceptionally good. And uh, chicken and rice dish. Well, I didn't know chicken and rice could smell so good. And uh, we, we... you know, got together, said the prayer, got our food, sat down to eat. I told Sandy, this is really good. It's amazing. Did you do something different? She said, well, I tried a different recipe. It's a new recipe. A few minutes, she, she was eating a little bit. I think she really liked it too. She said, I hope I can remember this recipe. <laughs> you know how that is when something is really, really great and uh, you just want to make sure you can replicate that and do it again because it tastes so good. When it comes to the Lord's church, he has a recipe that is so good, that is wonderful to the palate, if you will. And that recipe ought to be replicated all over the world in every local church that exists, so that every local church would be so good to the taste of God, and that he would walk in his house, as I did the other night, and say, That smells so good. (laughs) That tastes so good. My house is good. I want you to think with me about what's going on among people today. There's a perception, I think, among many of those who at least claim to be Christians and some who truly are Christians, that there are just a lot of different and valid ways of doing church, of preparing and building a local church. As a consequence of that, local churches don't turn out the same. And I don't mean that they're merely superficial differences relating to culture or uh, accepted traditions or the times of worship or the physical surroundings, but I mean that there are substantive variations now in local churches, claiming to be churches of Christ, claiming to be the Lord's people, but there are substantive differences in in the work sometimes, in the worship, in in the doctrines that are being taught. From a New Testament perspective, that reality should really concern us. Because in the New Testament, the Lord's recipe for the church as he revealed it was intended for churches to turn out the same. The good way that he designed them to be and the way that pleases him. Again, I understand that there are superficial differences. By superficial, I mean culture. I mean, you know, the kind of place you meet, the time that you meet. As many of you know, uh, I've had the privilege of traveling to a whole lot of places in the world. I've worshipped with God's people from everywhere to Japan, Australia, Africa, South America, Central America, lots and lots of different places. There are a lot of superficial differences. 
But I find among the true people of God that the important things are the same. Even to the structure of the worship and the things that are engaged in in the worship and what the church sees as its primary goal and what the people are going to get behind as far as serving the Lord and studying His Word and understanding what they need to be doing individually and collectively in their lives. So I want to talk to you tonight uh, about God's recipe for the local church. I preached lessons like this before since I've been to Eastside. We've had a number of lessons on the pattern for the local church. This is maybe another way of looking at that. I think it's important that we look at this from time to time so that we don't stray from God's intention for local churches and that we might help our brothers and sisters uh, around about, some of whom, a few of whom at least, may be confused about what God's intention is for the church. So where's the recipe for the church? what's, What's the recipe book, if you will, for the church? Well, a lot of folks base their notions on how to do church, if you will, from the teachings of Jesus found in the four Gospels. I'm hearing this more and more over the last few years where somebody's looking at Jesus' lessons on discipleship, on being a follower of His in uh, the Gospels, and suggesting then that we, we form uh, our collective activities based on, if not solely based on, what you find in the Gospels. And so you have a lot of, well, we need to care for the needy. And we need to uh, be interacting with people regarding their social issues or their political issues. Jesus certainly did a lot of that and talked about that sort of thing when he was walking the earth. The Lord's wonderful message to men, though, as he walked on earth, was was really designed to lead individuals to follow him as individuals. In brief, what we learn from the Gospels is that one who follows Christ learns the meaning of self-denial, self-sacrifice, and service to others. That is the core of what it is to be a Christian. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. A beautiful description of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But that is not a description of what a church is to be in the collective. It is not. But I'm hearing more and more take these principles of individual discipleship and saying, okay, we're going to make the church into this kind of a thing. Follow me for just a minute and I think we'll see the fallacy of that. In John chapter 13, Jesus says in washing the disciples' feet in the night that he was betrayed and you remember the story, he takes a towel, girds himself, washes their feet, says to them in John 13 and verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And so there are are, are people, more and more, this has been true for a while, but more and more I'm hearing of churches as churches having foot washing ceremonies. Because you would do that in the church because, right, Jesus said you're supposed to do that. Is that his intention there? 
Is this an item of worship? Some people are saying, yeah, that's, that's what we're going to do in the church. Like Christ, disciples need to learn to humble themselves, to show love and compassion for all men, to serve others no matter who they are, no matter how lowly you must bend. In discipleship, the weightier matters of the law, of God's will, if you will, are the major focus of a disciple's life. But the small things are important too. Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These ought you to have done without leaving the others undone. So there's discipleship. It's keeping your focus on the big things, but taking care of all things personally in your life to be pleasing to God in every way, not to show off to men, not to say you've checked off all the boxes, but to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. This is what we find in the Gospels. But the instruction in the Gospels gives us little direction, almost none, for the local church. Information about the local church and how the disciples are to work collectively is not found in the Gospels, in the teachings of Christ while he walked the earth, because as of yet there were no local churches. Simple as that. People would have wondered, and probably did, the one or two times Jesus talked about the church, what in the world that he was even talking about. You have the word church found only twice in the Gospels. Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church, talking about the worldwide church. And then Matthew 18 and verse 17, where Jesus anticipates the existence of local churches, I believe, as he teaches individual disciples uh, the process of handling a situation where one person sins against another. You go to that person, you talk to them, you take two or three witnesses if that doesn't get it solved, and then if they won't hear you or these others, then you take it to the church. And if you won't hear the church, let him be to you as a publican or a sinner. And that's it. As far, far as what Jesus says in the Gospels directly and specifically about the local church. There is virtually no instruction in the Gospels concerning local churches. So how can you go there to find the recipe for the local church when it doesn't talk about the local church? That seems problematic to me. Someone may say, well, you have instruction about the Lord's Supper. You have instruction about the Lord's Supper the night that he was betrayed. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us that. Well, that's true. But without further instruction, such as what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we would have no idea what to do with the instruction about the Lord's Supper. When and where, in what context, should we be doing it, you know, individually, should we keep the Passover to do it? How, how should it, any, any part of it? We'd have no information about how to do that at all. And it would be a free-for-all concerning taking the Lord's Supper. The reality is that looking in the Gospel accounts to obtain information 
about the proper organization, work, and focus of local churches exhibits a spectacular failure to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, of course, that Timothy should study or give diligence to show himself approved of God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, handling aright the word of truth. There's a reason that we don't go back to Leviticus to get instructions for how we're to worship today. There's a reason that the Gospels don't contain the information that we need for the recipe for the local church. And surely anybody with eyes open as to the purpose of these documents, these inspired documents, who's, who's willing to look at them with an unvarnished eye and just be honest, would have to admit that. That rightly dividing the word of truth would certainly not be what one is doing if they're going to those texts for instruction. So we come to then how we get the recipe for the local church. The Holy Spirit is going to give the recipe for that and all else uh, for the local church later to the apostles. When we turn over in our Bibles, and I invite you to do that in John chapter 16, Jesus, the night that he's betrayed, he has this really long dialogue with the apostles, with mostly with the 11. Judas has already left. He washes the feet. Uh, he talks with them a little bit, starting in chapter 13, then in 13, 14, 15, 16, and he prays in 17. All of that is just in the space of a few hours, the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's getting his disciples ready for him to go uh, and for them to take the uh, if you will, mantle of leadership of his people. In that context, he says in John chapter 16 and verse 12, I still have many things to say to you. Many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. In other words, I haven't told you anything like all that you need to know concerning what I want you to do and the work that you're to do. And then he says in the next verse, however, when he, the spirit of truth, and now this is the fourth time in these, verse, in these chapters that Jesus has promised that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. And so he's mentioned it, mentioned it, mentioned it. Now he comes back to it. And he says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. I haven't told you everything. He's going to guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. And of course, then Jesus goes out to Gethsemane. He's arrested. He's tried before uh, Annas, Caiaphas, and then Pilate, and he's crucified. The third day he rises. He appears to his disciples for some 40 days. He ascends. He tells them to wait, to wait in Jerusalem for power to be given them from on high. And they do. And it was. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them in Acts chapter 2. And the apostles preach this sermon. Particularly Peter stands up and tells the huge crowd of Jews that were gathered there that day that they crucified the Christ. And he was truly the Son of God as it was attested by his life, by his miracles, and particularly by the resurrection from the dead. And when the Jews that were gathered there on that day were convicted by the words of Peter and by the truth of those words, they turn and say, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
And Peter says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as many as gladly received his word were baptized and they were added to them that day. The text goes on to say at the end of it, 3,000. And those people who formed the first church based on the words of the apostles given by the Holy Spirit. The text will say in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Why do you suppose? Because the apostles had the recipe. And if we're to have local churches today that are pleasing to the Lord, that smell good when he walks in the house, we're going to have to follow the apostles' recipe. It is really as simple as that. That brings us then to think about the basic ingredients for local churches. That same apostolic doctrine that was followed by the first church was to be followed by all churches succeeding it. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and I invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians. We'll be noticing several passages there as we go along. That Paul, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. And he says, For this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. He's teaching the same thing in every local church. His ways, which are in Christ, which came from Christ, which rest upon the authority of Christ and the inspiration of the Apostle Paul from the Holy Spirit. He's teaching the same thing in every church. And to illustrate that, then, in the next few minutes, we're going to go and quickly, really, and look at just a, a number of things that Paul was teaching and the churches were practicing that were the same everywhere that form surely a part of the recipe, we might say the pattern, for each local church. There's the same teaching on marriage and divorce. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is at pains at great length to describe the relationship that ought to exist between a man and a woman in marriage, some hindrances to that relationship. What if one's not a Christian? What if one is? What if the non-Christian doesn't want to live with a Christian? So on and so forth. Should we be getting married? Should, should, we, ha, you know, should we stay married if, if it's that case? So on and so forth. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 17. He says, nevertheless, uh, sorry, that's not the right passage. Um, let's see if I can find it. Yes, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 17, it is. As God has distributed to each one as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. So in this winding up this discussion of marriage and problems related to it, he says, everybody stay where you are in the relationship that you're in, given that it's a God-ordained, authorized relationship. And then he says, so I ordain in all the churches. I read a lot of uh, some of our brethren who are trying to get loose on some things from time to time, and and when they write about what Paul writes, for instance, to Corinth, 
they'll, they'll say, well, Paul's just trying to solve the Corinthian problem of whatever it was in marriage or the Corinthian problem when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper or the Corinthian problem when it comes to taking up a collection for the saints. And so this was peculiar and special for the Corinthians and not necessarily formative or pattern for all of us. I wonder then why and why and why that Paul keeps on saying and saying and saying all the churches, not just for you. So I ordain in all the churches. Whatever he's saying in 1 Corinthians 7 applies to East Side Church of Christ right now today. All the churches. That means something. And whatever we practice in doctrine regarding marriage, divorce, separation, such as that, needs to be the same. Every church of the Lord in the world. All the churches. It's not optional. It's part of the recipe. Orderliness in worship. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And notice in this text, the problem was the worship assemblies were disorderly. Uh, They were uh, people speaking in tongues, sometimes multiple speakers at one time, sometimes one act of worship being engaged in at the same time another one is. Very confusing. People didn't know what was going on. People were using tongues when there was nobody to interpret. Just all kinds of problems that the apostle describes in this text. The worship assemblies, Paul says, though, were not to be haphazard. They were not to be disorderly. They were not to be confusing. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. All of them. That's how God wants it. And so when someone suggests today, well, what we need to do when we're taking the Lord's Supper, for instance, what we need to do is uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're all going to hold hands and we're all going to sing a song. All at the same time, we're taking the Lord's Supper. That's not what I'm reading. That's not free for us to choose. One item at a time of worship so that we can all focus on and all understand what's going on here. That's what I see. That's what's there. And it's to be that way in all the churches. We continue on, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Back in verses 26 and 27 that we've noted a lot over the years. Whenever you come together, brethren, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be one or two or most three. And each in turn that one may interpret. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church that he may speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, even with prophets. Let the others judge. So not everybody all at once. One at a time doing these things so everybody can understand. The goal is edification, not glorification of our talents. That's the point Paul's making. It's not the glorification of your talent. It's the edification of the church. That is the focus. On again in this context, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as also the law says. 
If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Doesn't sound like something he's just saying for Corinth. In this context, it's a rule. It's part of the recipe for all churches. What about the collection for the saints? I was mentioning this a minute ago when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We often look at this when we're thinking about our giving. We understand that there was a special situation that Paul is addressing here. It's a collection for poor saints in Jerusalem, but he's telling the church at Corinth how to go about making collection. He says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you also must do. The churches of Galatia and you, which was all the way across Asia Minor, by the way, from where Corinth was, you're all doing the same thing. It's the same order in all of the churches. Here's how you do it. Same way. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up to see me prosper. There may, may be no collections when I come. Now, Paul wasn't going to Galatia. But that's the same order that he gave them as far as how they take up their collection. Somebody says, well, Paul's just saying that because he's headed. No, he's, he's saying that. He also said that to Galatia. This is how you take care of this. Same in every church. Taking the Lord's Supper, which I've mentioned already in brief. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 through 34, and this, this is again, is a passage we've, we've looked at a lot when it comes to pattern. We're looking at recipe tonight. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. There was a problem at Corinth with taking the Lord's Supper. In giving you these instructions, then, Paul says, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. There must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. One translation says it's not possible to eat the Lord's Supper. You're supposed to be, but it's not possible to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you spise the church of God? Shame those who have nothing. What shall I say? In this, do, do I, shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. You realize how many times he says in that text that I just read, when you come together in the church or when you come together as the church. Where's the Lord's Supper supposed to be taken? Is it supposed to be taken in conjunction with a common meal? Both of those questions are clearly answered in that text. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be taken in the church, in the local church. When you come together in the church, in the church, when you come together, over and over and over again in that text. Number one. Number two, it's not in conjunction with a meal. In fact, if you're hungry, that's not what the Lord's Supper is about. If you think it's a meal, you're mistaken. It's not to satiate your hunger. It's to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say that. I, I, I delivered to you that which I received. That's what a tradition really is, take, giving something from somebody and taking it, take, receiving something from somebody, giving it to somebody else, handing it down. I delivered to you that which I received. 
And then he tells them how to go about taking the Lord's Supper. He's writing things that apply in every church. The Apostles' Doctrine. Let's think about for a few minutes a few other things. Suppose a church doesn't have elders. Elders need to be appointed in the churches. That's God's will. That's God's recipe for the church. Now, is that an ingredient we can just leave out? No, it's not. But if you don't have the ingredient, you can still have a church even without putting that in there. You know how some recipes, you can still have a pretty good recipe, but if you leave that one thing out, it's just not quite the same. It's not quite going to be as good. It's not okay with God for us just to leave this, recipe, this, this, this uh, ingredient out of the recipe of the church. But if we don't have it to put in, then you can't put it in, right? But you can still have a church. We know that. How do we know that? Well, Acts 14 and verse 23, Paul and Barnabas went around to the churches that they had already established. They were already churches, but they appointed elders in every church. They didn't have churches yet. I mean, elders yet. They're already churches, but they didn't have that final ingredient, so to speak. The Apostle Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city as he gave him charge. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should appoint elders, that you should rather set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. What are elders responsible to do? When we go back over to Acts chapter 20, we have Paul meeting with some elders, the elders from Ephesus. He meets them as we know it, Miletus. Uh, in verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. They meet him there. He has a long discussion with them about their work and the importance of the work that they're doing and how to go about doing some of their work. But in verse 28, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Let's zero in on two or three things there in verse 28. First of all, he doesn't call them elders. He called for the elders, verse 17 says, but now he addresses the people who came as overseers, or some translations might have bishop. Episcopus is the Greek word. Did the wrong guys come? Or are elders and Overseers are bishops, the same people. Obviously, they're the same people. I'm being facetious. He called for the elders. They came. He's talking to them. And yet, he says, God made you overseers or bishops. And he tells them then to shepherd, which is in a verb form in the original there, to shepherd the flock. One who is a shepherd, in the Greek language, that would be translated, the noun would be translated, pastor. So I was listening on the radio just this last week to a pretty famous radio preacher. He's passed away now. Uh, J. Vernon McGee. He has a radio program they're still running called Through the Bible. He has um, some enlightening sometimes observations about the verses that he covers. Sometimes he teaches false doctrine. And so I was listening, you know, to discern what he was trying to teach the other day on the radio. And he was talking about in almost the same breath, how that 
elders and overseers or bishops are the same. It's not a different office. It's the same function in the church. And then in almost the next breath, he talked about how he was pastoring a local church. <laughs> uh, yeah, elders and bishops and overseers, are that's all the same. And pastor is too, by the way, because that's what the shepherd is. He's the pastor or a pastor. And that's the work of, of shepherds. That's the oversight. They're to oversee this text, 1 Peter 5, elsewhere, their flock, the flock that is among them, the church that they're working with. They have the oversight responsibility for that flock. And they watch out for the souls of the sheep because there are wolves. And Paul goes on and warns these Ephesian elders about that in the following verses. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. From your own selves, some will arise, speaking false doctrine. And so, elders, shepherds, pastors have the responsibility of protecting the flock. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul is giving Timothy qualifications for these men, he tells that him that the elders were to take care of the church like they took care of their own families. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Taking care of God's house, God's people. Note Paul's description of qualified elders in Titus chapter 1 where he says that they're to be in verse 9, holding fast the, word, the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So an elder should be able, a pastor should be able, a shepherd should be able to fend off the wolf. Someone who's contradicting the truth. Now I'm spending a little bit more time on this because here's a reality. Reality check, okay? Why is it that we continue to hear of sometimes small groups of people leaving sound churches with good elderships to go in the same community and start another work because they have some new ideas about how to do things. They don't want to cause a stir where they were, so they're going to go over here and do this or that, allow for this or that. That's, they think, slightly different, but there's nothing really wrong with it. Why is that? Is that the recipe for the local church? Is, is that God put elders in local churches so the sheep could run away and start another flock over here on their own without the guidance of that eldership or those shepherds? Is that, is that what you're seeing? That's not what I'm seeing. And so what happens a lot, and I'm not saying this in every case by any means, but what happens a lot of times is the real impetus and motivation for people leaving sound churches to go start some other group or whatever it might be like that is escaping the protection and the oversight of qualified elders. That's not God's plan. That's not in the recipe but it is practiced. God wants his churches to discipline their members. 
We had some good teaching on this uh, not too long ago here at Eastside from Donnie Rader. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul commands as an apostle, we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. That's the command of the apostle. A similar command is made to the church at Corinth, which you'd expect, because Paul says, I'm teaching the same thing in all the churches. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 4 and 5 says almost exactly the same thing. In the New Testament, members of every church had the responsibility to strive for unity with one another. Ephesians 4 does a, a great job, of course, of talking about unity in the church as a whole and how we can have that based on the unity that God has given us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But 1 Corinthians 1 applies especially to what goes on in a congregation. Let there be no divisions among you, Paul says. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Divisions are not okay. Divisions over personal opinions or doctrines are not okay. Divisions over people are certainly not okay. In that context, one says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Paul says, you can't have that. You can't have that. we have disagreements in God's house among God's people we can resolve that we can do it in-house Paul describes how to do that in 1 Corinthians 6 if brethren have something they're at odds with one another about and he tells us also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that you give up your rights you forfeit your way of doing things you become all things to all men you can get along with your brothers and sisters Churches, and this will be the final point tonight, but I want to spend a minute or two on it, so it's just snow. Don't worry about it. One of the things that, especially in our area, I think we here and churches around, I would say this in any church that would let me around here, we need to be more connected with each other. We need to be more encouraging of each other. There are churches in our area that may not be worthy of our support, our encouragement. They still need our prayers, even if that's the case. But there are several that are, I know, and I know you think that too, worthy of our support, worthy of our encouragement. And, and the Bible pattern is actually that churches that were in close proximity did that. They, they knew about each other. They cared about one another's spirituality, one another's membership. Uh, how do I know that? Well, in Romans chapter 16 and verses 3 and 4, Paul tells the Romans to greet Aquila and Priscilla, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So here's a, a bunch of churches, a bunch of them, all being thankful for the same two people. That implies, doesn't it, a sharing of information, an appreciation for the work that two people are doing, an appreciation by a lot of different churches about the work that two people are doing. But beyond that, and even more, maybe personally and applicable to our situation here, when we go over to Colossians chapter 4, there's a couple of verses, these are the kinds of verses we often just kind of skim over at the end of an epistle, you know, we're not even sure 
what's important or why they're here. But listen to this. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. Now, there are three churches in this area that are in pretty close proximity. There's Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. And they're just within miles of one another. In fact, you can stand uh, at either, one, either city and you see the other city from either place, from all three places. So they're within sight of one another. Paul is, is writing to the Colossians, but he says to them, greet the brethren who are at Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. You, members of the church at Colossae, greet the members of this other church and I think probably a third one, the Colossian church and Nymphus's ch- the church at Nymphus's house, probably two different churches. You greet them. And he says, now, when this epistle is read among you, you see that it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and likewise you read the epistle from Laodicea. Does that sound like they're sharing information, that they know about one another's work, that they're concerned about one another's spiritual well-being? Sure sounds like it to me. Is there a violation of church autonomy? Is one eldership trying to take over the eldership of another church? No. There's just communication. There's love. There's concern. There's caring. And may I just end this lesson by saying this, brethren, in North Alabama, we need that. We need it. I'm all for holding everybody's feet to the fire, especially ours. Striving to be doctrinally correct in every way. Loving the Lord first and foremost but also in encouraging others to do the same and in love. The local church is not some free form, just get all of the stuff you have in your cabinet and throw it in a pot and hope something comes out nice. That's not what it is. The local church is not ever, is not uh, make it whatever you want it to be kind of a thing. We're not making mud pies. You know the thing about making mud pies? You ever make mud pies when you were a kid? Your recipe really didn't matter. (laughs) It's a mud pie. This is the Lord's church. This is, this is what Jesus died for. Let's do it His way. There might be one here tonight subject to the invitation of Christ. You and this church need to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Is He happy with you? In the fear and love of Almighty God, let's follow Christ's recipe for His churches, but particularly His recipe for our lives. Would you do that? See what God wants for your life. He's going to cook up something great in you if you'll just let Him. Would you give your life to Him? We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.